I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians. If you're not completely positive where that is and you'd like to use the red Bibles around you, our passage is going to be on page 976. We're beginning a new series today that's going to take us actually through the entire school year. We'll be looking at this wonderful, uh, fairly short book, six chapters, uh, but there is so much rich food for us to savor uh, over these coming months together as we look at this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote. And today we're just going to be looking at the first two verses uh, and thinking about what he is saying even in his introductory greeting uh, to the people that he was writing to. So listen as I read to you from Ephesians 1 verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for the letter of Ephesians. We thank you for having the Apostle Paul write it. We thank you for so preserving it that we can have it in front of us today and that we can learn from it. So we pray for your Holy Spirit to be at work here in these very moments taking your word, impressing it on soft hearts. We can't do that on our own, Father, so we pray for you to do it for us. Help us to grow in our understanding of who we are. And as a result, Father, would you send us out to live like who we are this week ahead. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever found yourself in a place where you felt like you didn't belong? Uh, Maybe a a situation where uh, you you felt uncomfortable, you felt out of place. Maybe it was even a hostile situation that you found yourself in. As I do on a regular basis, uh, taking Mondays off on a regular basis, we'll go and see a movie movie on Mondays. And I did that this past Monday. Saw a new movie that had just come out called Operation Finale. It is a a very interesting movie that I wasn't quite aware of the storyline of, and so it was helpful just to learn about this part of what happened as World War II ended and in the decades after. Operation Finale is the story about the Nazi Lieutenant Colonel Adolf Eichmann uh, being found to be alive and being captured and then brought back to stand trial in Jerusalem in the early 1960s. Eichmann was one of Hitler's main officers. He was referred to as the architect of the final solution. He was one of the very key people that came up with the plan to how to get rid of the Jews, not only from Germany, not only from Europe, but Their plan had gone, as they hoped, off the face of the earth. Eichmann slipped out of Germany just before being captured, first living in Austria for a number of years and then eventually moving to Argentina where he lived. The movie tells the story uh, 
of how he was found and captured and then brought back to Jerusalem to stand trial. And the movie has tension uh, almost the entire way through it. And the tension revolves around the fact that the Israeli government sent their special intelligence officers, the Mossad officers, secretly, covertly into Argentina without the knowledge of the Argentinian government. And they were there in a place where you can believe they felt out of place. In fact, in the 50s and 60s, in Argentina, there was a resurgence of the Nazi idealism and the Nazi party. So there were these Mossad officers, these military intelligence officers, launching this covert plan to bring Eichmann back to justice. And the tension was palpable throughout the entire movie. You could feel they were always close to being caught, always close to being found out. Even once they had Eichmann, they couldn't leave the country for a period of time. And there was tension. Would they get out? How would they get out? Would they be found? You feel that tension throughout of this place of unsafety and being uncomfortable. A place where they literally didn't belong. They were out of place. But eventually they did get Eichmann out, just barely. Smuggling him out of the country and bringing him back to Israel. And as they land in Israel, you can feel the tension resolve because now they are back home. Now they are where they are supposed to be. But Eichmann's not. Now the tension shifts. Now Eichmann sits in front of the Israeli Knesset, the parliament, in front of the people, and indeed some of you will remember, in front of the entire world as it was broadcast, and he was held accountable for crimes against Israel, crimes against the Jewish people, crimes against humanity. And as he sat on the stand, not denying anything that he had been involved in, you could feel how uncomfortable he was. You could see how much he was out of place, eventually found guilty and hung in the early 1960s. Well, how does that relate to the book of Ephesians? We're beginning this new book today, a new study. And although the context is extremely different from the story that's told in Operation Finale, the movie, There is a similarity here in that this, Paul is writing this letter to a group of people who felt out of place. They they felt like they were someplace that they didn't belong. They were uncomfortable. They were in a place that even was hostile to their being alive in that place. And Paul, writing this letter, is writing to encourage and to give them hope, to give them strength to persevere in the midst of that kind of a feeling of not belonging. It was written to the Christians in the city of Ephesus. We see that right away at the beginning of the letter. It was probably also a circular letter, not only to the people there in Ephesus, but around to the neighboring towns and the churches there as well. And Paul writes to them, how do you live as a Christian in a place that is not friendly to the Christian faith? That's not comfortable. That's even hostile to your existence. We know from verse 1 that Paul, someone who had been called by God, sent out as an apostle by God's very will, was the one who wrote this letter. He probably wrote it around 61 or 62 A.D. And he was most certainly in prison 
in Rome when he wrote the letter. He wrote it to a group of Christians in the city of Ephesus, which is today in modern day Turkey. It was a major city in the Roman Empire at the time. Some scholars believe it was probably the fourth or fifth largest city at that point. Some 300,000 people, probably three times the size of the city of Rochester. It was a large, influential city. It was a port city. And as a result, there were constantly people coming and going. And Ephesus was known as being a place where there was lots of sin that was easy to be had. It was a very pluralistic city. It was a very pluralistic culture. And ironically, there was great tolerance of almost everything except for the Christian faith. Christians would often feel threatened and marginalized because of their faith. As with other Roman emperor, emperor as with other of the cities in the Roman Empire, the, the worship of the emperor was something that was expected. But Ephesus was also known for the worship of the Greek goddess Diana or Artemis. And there's even a story of one time when the Christians, who obviously refused to bow down and worship a, a Greek god or the emperor, were rounded up and brought to the stadium, the theater of Ephesus that seated probably close to 50,000 people, and forced to stand in the middle while the citizens of Ephesus chanted and shouted and threatened at the top of their voices. This was not a comfortable place to be a Christian and to live. Now, we live in a different place, in a different time, and our scene here in southeastern Minnesota is not exactly like that. But nonetheless, we know as Christians living here in 2018, in this country, in this state, in this part of the state, that it can be a challenge to live as a Christian here. We live in a very pluralistic culture, and it seems like there's tolerance of lots of things, but certainly not absolute truth, certainly not Christianity and the Christian gospel, and we can feel out of place. We can feel a bit uncomfortable, we can feel marginalized, we can even feel that our culture around us is hostile to us and to the faith that we hold dearly. And we can struggle to figure out how are we supposed to live faithfully, maintaining right belief and right practice. My hope and my prayer is that Ephesians is going to help us with those questions as we wrestle through these Uh, verses and chapters over the coming months, just as the Christians in the city of Ephesus did in the first century. I want you to see something right here as we begin. It's something that's very key and will come up over and over again as we look into this book. And that is that Paul wrote this book to give them hope and strength and motivation. And he did it by dividing it into basically two main sections. The, the book itself is kind of into two sections. Chapters 1 through 3 are the first section and chapters 4 through 6 are the second section. And... and It's really important that you see the distinction because of what Paul is doing in these two chapters. Now, of course, there's overlap in these ideas, but essentially chapters 1 and 3 are these wonderful, deep, rich 
truths of who God is and who we are in Christ Jesus. The theology just drips with richness. You can even just look at the, the chapter category headings, which are not part of the original text, but the, uh, the editors of the particular versions we have. You can even just see the, the, the headings that they have put in here and how those first three chapters where we think about what it means to have grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The fact that we are one in Christ, the mystery of the gospel of Jesus Christ that is revealed to us. And then chapters 4 through 6, Paul transitions to think about not moving away from the, the truth that he gives us in chapters 1 through 3, but having that truth then applied into the lives of the Ephesians, practical, practical, tangible application for how they ought to take those beliefs and then apply them into their lives. So what we have in chapters 1 through 3 is what is true of us. And chapters 4 through 6 is what are we supposed to do as a result? Chapters 1 through 3, almost all of the verbs are in the indicative tense. What is true? Who are you? Who is God? Chapters 4 through 6, almost all of the verbs are in the imperative. Here's how you are to live as a result. What is true? Who you are? Your identity in Christ Chapters 1 through 3 lead us to chapters 4 through 6, how we are to live in response. The indicative leads to the imperative. We'll talk about this more in a moment, but that can never be reversed. When you reverse that, you have something other than Christianity. Right here at the beginning, the introductory greeting, Paul gives them a picture of what he's going to be telling them in the rest of the book. That the indicative leads to the imperative. What is true of them, who they are in Christ, their identity, the indicatives, tells them how they are to live in response, the imperatives. And he does that this morning by reminding them who they are, where they are, and what's true of them. So let's look at those three things this morning quickly as we look at this, these first two verses. First of all, notice that he tells them, reminds them who they are. Verse 1. To the saints in Ephesus, he said. That word, saints, is actually a very important word. It's a word that means holy. Or ones who are set apart by God. Ones who are consecrated by God. This is a, a title it is a status, it is a designation that Paul is giving of who these people are that he's writing to. This is not something that they have created in themselves. It is, it is not something they have done by their efforts. It is not because of some, some uh, level of Christian maturity that they have reached over a period of time, some kind of super spiritual level. It's not through years of their hard work. Paul says they are saints and they have been saints since they have been redeemed by God himself. They have the status, the designation, because God has given it to them. It is because of the life and death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ that they have the status, the designation as saints, as holy ones, as ones who have been consecrated, set apart by God. They have been declared righteous. They have been declared holy. They have been declared saints by God through faith 
in Jesus Christ. That's what chapters 1 through 3 are going to tell us over and over and over again. But notice that's not all that he calls them. He refers to them as saints, but he also goes on to say, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful. This is a word that is describing their response to God's call to live as a Christian in Ephesus. These are not only the called out ones, the the holy ones, the ones who have the status of saint before the very eyes of God. These are also the ones who are faithful. They live their lives out in faithfulness, loving and trusting and obeying the Lord. They've been called to live for Him. And in the midst of living in this place, He calls them to trust Him and to obey Him. And even in places where they feel out of place and feel like they don't belong, in places that are very hostile to their faith, they are called to be faithful. That shows how they are the called out ones and the saints. This is what chapters 4 through 6 are going to show us over and over again. This is who they are. They are saints. This is the indicative. And they are also faithful. That's the imperative. They not only know who they are, but they know how they are supposed to live. And that's true for us this morning as well. If you are here this morning as a Christian, you are a saint. Not because a specific church has canonized you because you've done some miraculous work. You are a saint in the sight of God because of who you are in Christ. You are a holy one. I don't care if you don't feel like a holy one. You are declared righteous in God's sight. You are declared holy and consecrated and set apart because of what Christ has done for you. That's the indicative truth of who you are. And you are to be a faithful one, called to live out who you are in this life, trusting and obeying the Lord, even in a place where you may at times feel like you don't belong or that you're out of place. So Paul addresses this idea of being saint and faithful at the same time. And notice he gets at it again by reminding them where they are. Paul reminds them that they live in two places at the same time. Do you see that? The first thing that he says is that they are saints who are in Ephesus. I know it's easy to read over that quickly and what, you know, what's the significance of that? It's just a geographical term. It, it puts them in a place, but that's the point. These are God's people, the saints, who are seeking to live out their identity and faithfulness to the Lord. And God has put them in a place. He has put them in Ephesus. A difficult place for a Christian to live But this is the place where God has called them. This is the place that God has placed them to live as who they are, as a saint faithfully. They are to live out the imperatives and the commands of the Lord because of where God has placed them. This is the place where chapters 4 through 6 of the applications that he's giving us are going to be unrolled and unfurled as he tells them about how they are to live in unity together, how they are to relate to each other, fathers and sons and mothers and daughters, how they are to relate to each other as employers and employees, husbands and wives. All of these applications, he's saying, I've put you in a place, I've put you in Ephesus. That is the place where you are called to live as saints faithfully. 
But it's not the only place that he reminds them that they are. Look at also what he says to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Not only does he tell them and remind them, you are in a place where God has called you to be his saints and to be faithful. But the way that you'll do it is because you're not only in that place, literally, physically, but you are also, if you are a Christian, you are in Christ Jesus. Spiritually, that is where you are. He mentions Jesus three times in these two verses. And here he mentions about being in Christ Jesus or in Jesus. It's a key phrase for Paul. We'll see it over and over again in the book of Ephesians. And you can look at the other letters that Paul wrote. And it's all over the place in Paul's letters. This idea that Christians, those who have been redeemed and reconciled through the atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ, are now considered to be in Christ. This is, in essence, the same thing that he's saying by calling them saints. To be in Christ Jesus means that we have been united and connected to Jesus by faith. This is not something that we do. This is something that God does through the work of the Holy Spirit as we put our faith in Christ. And if you're a Christian here this morning, then you are in Christ. You have been united to Him. Everything that He achieved is yours. You are connected to Him. The blessings of redemption are yours because you are now united to Christ and connected to him. Again, see the indicative and the imperative. Because we are in Christ, God has put them in Ephesus to live as saints faithfully. They are in Christ. That's who they are. That is what is true of them. That's their identity. That's the indicative. They are now connected and united to him by faith. And now they are to live like who they are faithfully in Ephesus. And if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, this is true for you as well. You are in Christ. You have been united to Him. The Holy Spirit has been sent to live in you. Your sin has been paid for. The righteousness of Jesus Christ has been credited to your accounts. And you now are a new creation in Christ. But God has also put you in a place. He's put you in Rochester. He's put you in Austin or Winona or Pine Island or somewhere in southeastern Minnesota or somewhere else where he has has placed you. Where has God put you? If you drove around much this week on North Broadway, you know it was a mess. And it's been a mess for a couple of weeks, actually, as they're trying to get the, I assume it's a repaving being done. It just happens to be right on the street that I come out of our neighborhood on a regular basis. And so throughout the last couple of weeks, every time I come out in my car, it's, it's, you never know what's going to be happening out there. And it changed again even this past week. Early on, it was they stripped away all of the pavement and it was this rough road. And you kind of wonder, like, are my tires going to get worn down because I'm driving on this uneven road that sounds very rough on the tires. And then they put down gravel, loose gravel. And not only are you fishtailing around on the gravel, they've taken the lines away so you can't see where you're going. Gravel's shooting up everywhere from these cars and so you're getting nicks in your car and you're getting dings in your windshield. And then this week they put tar down on top of that. 
And at some point that was wet tar and you could actually kind of see it. And as people pulled off of Broadway into the stores and various things, you could see the tar going off into the, into the driveways of various places. Now, my car didn't change all this week. It's the same car. But every time I pulled onto Broadway, something was different. And I had to make adjustments. How far back I stayed from the cars in front of me, which probably was a good thing anyway. How slowly I drove. How carefully I tried to stay out of the obvious wet tar patches. Right? Do you see, my car didn't change. Who you are in Christ never changes. You are a Christian. You are in Christ. But God's put you into a place. And wherever that place is, you are called to live out your identity Taking it into all the different circumstances of life that come at you. Where has God put you? Not just geographically, but where are the places that he's put you? What are the callings that you have? What are the vocations in life? You're a mom or a dad. You're a healthcare professional. You're in, in the IT world. You're a student. You work for the government. You're a farmer. You're an educator. You are retired. You're a neighbor. You're a son or a daughter, an elder or a deacon, a Bible study leader or a Bible study attender. You're involved in ministry in some way. Your life circumstances are good and joyful or your life circumstances are challenging and difficult. But wherever you are, wherever the Lord has placed you, He has placed you there for His purposes. And He's calling you to live like who you are. You are in Christ. And that doesn't change no matter what the circumstances of your life are. There's a third thing that he says here about getting at this indicative imperative thing one more time. He gets it at it in verse 2 when he tells them what is true of them. He says in verse 2, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a, an atypical greeting in the Greek world. Normally a greeting would be very common in a letter like this that was being sent out. Uh, something about hello or greetings or a welcome to you. But Paul's taking that usual greeting and he's changing it ever, uh, just a little bit. He, he's using these two words, grace and peace. The word grace is charis. It means unmerited favor. We heard it earlier in our service in Ephesians chapter 2. It's, it's, that, it's that gift of God. Some have referred to it, rather than calling it unmerited favor, getting something that we don't deserve, some have referred to it as demerited favor. <laughs> the idea there, not only that we don't get what we deserve, which is God's judgment and wrath, but we get what we don't deserve, which is His acceptance and love and adoption into His family. That is His grace. And Paul reminds them of that right off the bat at this letter. Grace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not something you earn. It's something that is given to you as a gift. It's what Paul himself experienced on the road to Damascus when Jesus blinded him with the gospel. It's what Paul's going to describe to us over and over again in chapters 1 through 3. God's grace, His mercy, His goodness. But notice he also says, peace to you. The New Testament idea of peace is really summarizing the Old Testament word shalom. And the word shalom, the idea of peace in the Old Testament, wasn't just about a feeling. When we talk about being at peace, we, we, we have a, a sense of kind of feeling 
in mind. Uh, being calm, being quiet, having a life that's like still water. Right? That's what we think of when we think of peace. But the Old Testament idea of shalom was not only that, it was more than that. It also meant the idea of well-being, of living a life of, of faithful obedience. Even in the midst of circumstances and situations which may be directly opposed and hostile to you, causing you to feel like you don't belong or that you're out of place, Paul is reminding them that they have God's grace and God's peace. So they are to go out remembering the grace that is theirs through the Lord Jesus Christ and to live lives of gospel obedience, peace. It's interesting that Paul ends Ephesians with the same words, grace and peace, in the last two verses of the book. It's almost like he's creating book ends for us. As we remember and as we begin the book and as we end the book, we remember and we meditate all that God, on all that God has already accomplished and done for us through the gospel. We remember how he sees us, how he views us, what he thinks of us, the grace of God that has been worked already for us and given to us through faith in Christ. And that reality is to fill us with a peace that is beyond understanding, a peace that is beyond explaining. So that even in the midst of the challenges and difficulties and the circumstances of our life, no matter how they change, we be who we are in the midst of those things. So Paul starts this letter with a snapshot of what this whole book is going to be about. The structure of the entire book is really kind of embedded here in these first two verses, this welcoming introduction that Paul has for the Ephesian Christians. He gives them the indicative, what is true of them, who they are. They are saints. And where they are, they are in Christ Jesus. And what God has done for them, He has, he has given them His grace. But He also gives them the reminders of the imperatives that are coming in chapters 4 through 6. What they are to do, how they are to live, how they are to be faithful in the place where God has put them in Ephesus. And to do that with a steady, peaceful obedience. So as we finish this morning, I just want to give you two takeaways that you can be thinking about as we head into this wonderful little letter that God has given us to study over the coming months. Two takeaways for you this morning. The first one is this. The indicative leads to the imperative and the order cannot be reversed. If I simply live my life trying to be the best person that I can be, being faithful, honoring the Lord in my life, being a good person, and I look to how successful I am in doing that for my surety and my assurance and my joy of being redeemed and reconciled before the Father, then I am going to live a life under the crushing weight of never being able to live up to that standard. When difficulties come, whether they are difficulties from within myself or difficulties from outside of myself, if my hope is in how good of a job I'm doing in causing the father to think of me as an adopted son or daughter, then I will be crushed under the weight of those expectations. You can't live the imperatives of the scriptures hoping to get the indicatives. That's not Christianity. 
It's not believing the gospel of grace. Rather, what we're called to remember this morning and throughout this book is that we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and we will be saved. We are declared holy, saints, set apart. We believe that by believing in Jesus' finished and completed work on the cross, that that's enough. We know that God has loved us from before the foundation of the world and that status is eternally secure and sure. We know, as Paul is going to tell us later in Ephesians, that God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our sins, made us alive together with Christ. That it is by His grace that He has saved us and raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly places. And in the coming ages, He will show His immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness to us in Christ Jesus. That is the indicative truth of who you are if you are in Christ this morning. Now go out and live like who you are. Go out and be faithful. Because the second takeaway is that even though the indicative leads to the imperative and that order can't be reversed, we can't ignore the imperatives. We must live lives as God's called out holy saints Those who are in Christ, leaning against our sin and pursuing holiness in our lives. And that's non-negotiable. That over time, over the course of our lives, however however long the Lord gives us to live on this planet, the long-term trajectory of our lives, we see a growth in grace and maturity in Christ-likeness. Not because of how good we are, but because of how good God is in instilling His Holy Spirit in us. Causing us more and more to say no to sin and to say yes to holiness. The indicative is great news. It's encouraging news. It is comforting news. And that needs to move us and motivate us to the imperatives of loving the Lord and obeying obeying Him. So who are you this morning? If you're a Christian, you are a saint. You are in Christ. God's grace is yours through Jesus Christ. And what that means is you're called to be faithful wherever God's put you. Whatever geographical location, whatever calling and vocation in life He's given to you, to pursue a life of peace anchored in the gospel of His grace and mercy. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you and again we thank you for Paul writing this letter. We thank you for the Holy Spirit guiding and directing him as he wrote. We thank you for the wonderful message of your goodness and grace to us in Christ. Thank you that Paul gave it to them, even here in these introductory greetings, just a reminder of who we are and how we are to live. I pray, Father, that as we open up this section of your word over the coming months, that you would use it as a, as a great benefit over and over again, Father, that you would remind us and teach us who we are. And that that would send us out with joy and comfort to live like you've called us to be. To your glory, but also for the building up of your church and your kingdom in the places where you have put us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.
In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul gives instructions to the church in Corinth and by the work of the Holy Spirit also to us here today on what it is we do as we come to the Lord's Supper today. Paul says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Just a chapter earlier, as he was speaking to the same people, he said this. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? The Protestant Reformation helped recover the idea of the Lord's Supper not being a place where the bread and the wine are literally changed into the body of Jesus. The Protestant movement, the the Reformed Church, moved away from that Roman Catholic uh, view of Christ's presence in the Lord's Supper. But sometimes, I think, in the Evangelical Church and even in the Reformed Church, we can turn the Lord's Supper into just simply a remembrance, simply a memorial, and nothing more. But we actually believe that Christ is really and truly present here in this place, but spiritually, not physically That's why Paul says what he does earlier in Corinthians when he says that as we eat and as we drink, we're actually participating in the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, when Christians come to this table and they come to the Lord's Supper in faith and they eat and drink trusting in Christ and His finished work, those are the indicatives, then we are receiving Christ with all of the benefits that He has achieved for us through His death and resurrection and ascension. Spiritually, as we eat and drink, we are feeding on Christ. We're nourished by Him, really and spiritually. But sometimes I think what we do is we say, yes, it's spiritually, but we mentally think it's just hypothetical or artificial. But I think what the Word tells us how the Holy Spirit is at work, is taking the Lord's Supper and as we eat by faith, applying it into our lives, giving us strength in our faith so that as we go out this week, we will have the faith to actually not only believe who we are, but live like who we have called, been called to believe. So this table should be a table of great joy, a table of great encouragement, and a table of great comfort. In just a minute, we're going to sing a hymn that you normally don't hear unless it's Advent. Comfort, comfort ye my people. But this table is a table of comfort if you're in Christ this morning. It's a reminder of all that has been accomplished for you. It's a promise of what God will be doing for you and through you through the work of the Holy Spirit as you eat and drink in faith. So if you're here this morning, you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and you have publicly professed that faith in Christ here at Trinity or another church that believes the Bible is true and the gospel is by grace alone, then as the trays are coming around, eat and drink, remember. But also know that as you eat and drink in faith, Jesus Christ is present spiritually, feeding you with himself, encouraging you, strengthening your faith. 
So let's pause and let's thank him for giving us this table and ask him to do those very things for us today. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the Lord's Supper. We thank you for this means of grace, this sacrament. We thank you that it does remind us of all that Christ has accomplished. But we do pray, Father, that your Spirit would be at work here, even in these very moments, taking uh, our what we're doing here and the faith that we come to you in, the faith that you've given to us, whether it is a strong faith or a weak faith this morning, we come with genuine faith, believing in Christ, trusting in Him, trusting in who you have made us to be and who you have called us to be. And as we do that, Father, would you, through the work of the Spirit, strengthen us, cause our faith to grow, cause our belief in what you have said about who we are to be strengthened. And give us the resolve and motivation to live for you this week ahead. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.